Today is a day that we celebrate the men who have had a, a tremendous impact in our life. I'm really grateful to have my dad here. I'm really proud to be his son. Um, I know that for some of us here, today is, is full of more sorrow probably than celebration because it's a reminder of the men in your life that are no longer there. Perhaps it's a reminder of things you wish you had said that you didn't get a chance to say, or maybe things that you, you did say that you wish you hadn't said. Um, and for some of us, it's a reminder of the men who held the title father, but never really understood how to be a dad. And so it's interesting. I, I watched that video and, you know, just to see even the little mannerisms that the, you pick up. And I, I, I look at my own boys and I see how much of me is in them, whether that's from nature or nurture. Uh, they, they pick up everything, including the things we don't want them to. I can't tell you how many times I'll be like, Grayson! Stop yelling at your brother as I'm in the other room yelling across the house. Or I'll go, Great, Ethan, stop throwing pillows at your brother. And Kathy goes, seriously? You threw the pillow first. You're the one who modeled that. For... And they're little sponges and they pick up everything. And so we want to celebrate fathers. But at the same time, what I want to do is we've been in this series called Transitions, where we've been looking at some of the transitions that took place throughout the lives of, of the men and women, particularly at this point through uh, in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Last week, we watched a transition that took place between King Saul to King David. And David and Saul were very, very different kings. Because David, unlike Saul, who tended to look at that position as a a right, right? I'm the king. It's my position. It's my power. David recognized that it was a responsibility. And he was a good king. He was called a man after God's own heart. And, And I don't believe that's because he was a perfect man. If you read the text, he was anything but perfect. And yet, every time that he was, came face to face with his humanity, with his flaws, David was willing, rather than running away from it, he faced it eventually. And he was, he was willing to come to his knees and to say, God, I need you. And he allowed God ultimately to guide him. And I believe that's one of the reasons why he was called a man after God's own heart. And we could spend weeks enumerating the things that are worth, were worth celebrating about David's leadership. But today, seeing as it's Father's Day, I feel like it's more fitting for us to look at one of David's greatest weaknesses, and that is his presence as a father, his ability to be present with his kids. And not all of them. I'm going to look at one particular relationship, a relationship that he had with his son Absalom. And so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's towards the beginning of of the Bible. If you find yourself in Psalms or Kings or Chronicles, keep going left until you hit it. Now, a little bit different time, day and age. David had a lot of wives, and as often happens with any number of wives, he ended up having some kids. David had a lot of kids. And because he had multiple wives, it means that he had a lot of half-brothers and half-sisters running around Jerusalem. And there was one of his sons, a guy named Amnon. He was David's firstborn son. And Amnon was attracted to one of his half-sisters, a girl named Tamar. By the way, I'm just, I'm just going to warn you, we're going to cover about six chapters of Scripture today. It's going, I'm going to tell you a story that's laid out over six chapters, and we do not have time to go verse by verse. So I'm going to be paraphrasing most of this and guiding you to certain places where we're going to lean into the Scripture, just so you're aware. So we've got Amnon. 
David's firstborn son, probably going to be the one who will ultimately take over the kingdom once David dies. And he's attracted to one of his half-sisters. And rather than going to dad and saying, hey, would you give me your blessing to marry your daughter? He decides to take matters into his own hands. And so he tricks this girl into his room and then takes advantage of her forcibly. And when he's done, we read this in, in verse 15. When it was all over, his response is almost worse than his choice in the beginning, although there's not many things he could say worse. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said, get up and get out. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it true to life that when you're tempted towards something and it seems so desirable in the moment, once you've given in, then all of a sudden the thing that was so desirable all of a sudden becomes perhaps a reminder of, of your choices. It becomes something you want, don't want around at all. And he says, get up and get out. I don't want you here. And she's like, don't kick me out. Are you kidding me? But he hardens his heart and he says, leave. Well, Tamar's full brother from same mom, same dad is a guy named Absalom. And Absalom sees his sister grieving. And he says, come home. I'll take you into my house. Uh, He cleans her up, takes care of her, and basically says, you can live here. But what about David? Where's David in all of this? Well, turn, go down to verse 20. Now, let's, let's keep going. Let's go to 21. When King David heard about everything that happened, he was furious. It's a good start, right? I would be furious if somebody hurt one of my children. So he's furious. But what we don't hear about is that he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't, we don't hear about him consoling Tamar. We don't hear about him um, coming alongside Amnon and saying, child, what are you doing? And putting him in his place. He does nothing. And I wonder if perhaps that's because in some ways David had also recognized it would have been hypocritical for him to do, right? Because David had his own sexual sins in his background. David had cheated on one of his closest friends. And when, when he took his, his friend's wife and got her pregnant, he then tried to cover it up. And when he couldn't get it covered up, he then killed his clo- one of his closest friends, had him put in the front of a battle, and he is killed so that he can have that woman as his wife. And so David probably looks at this and goes, listen, I have no foundation to stand on to be correcting my son. Or perhaps David simply recognized that my responsibility is to the kingdom. That's my, it's my wife's job, their mother, to take care of the kids, so they'll interject. But for whatever reason, David is upset at Amnon's choice, but he doesn't engage. He doesn't lean in. He stays passive and disengaged. Meanwhile, you've got Absalom, who's got his sister destitute and broken in his home. And he's angry, understandably so. And yet he ascribes to that philosophy that revenge is a dish best served cold. And so we read here in verse 22 that Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, but he hated his brother Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Fast forward a couple of years. Life goes on. But Absalom has the constant reminder of what his brother has done to his sister, living in his home, caring for her, And one day he decides it's time. It's time to get my revenge. It's time to pay my brother back for what he's done to my sister. 
And so he throws a party and he invites all of his siblings to come. And he tells his attendants, listen, in the middle of the party, I'm going to give you the signal. And I want you to surround my brother Amnon and I want you to stab him until he is dead. I give you permission. I will take full responsibility for it. So do it. The party's going and he gives the signal and in come his attendants and they kill his brother, the heir to the throne. And understandably, the rest of Absalom's brothers and sisters are like, is he going to kill us too? Is he trying to clear the deck so that he can be king? And they all rush out of the building. And Absalom recognizes, I've just killed the, the heir to the throne. It's very likely that my father will kill me as well. So then he runs to his mother's father's house, to his grandpa's house, which is outside of Israel, and he hides out there. And he waits for his father to respond. And yet again, David is upset. His heart is broken at the loss of his son. His heart is broken at the distance and the schism now that has been created between him and Absalom. But he does nothing. For three years, he never reaches out to his boy. He never sends somebody to talk to him. He never once tries to repair this. You beginning to see this pattern? I find it so interesting that David, who can command armies, a man who is a very competent leader of the people of God, has such a difficult time leaning in and being present with his family and dealing with the things at home. Perhaps he thought what many of us think, which is that time heals all wounds. Now, that's a philosophy a lot of us carry around with us, but when you think about it, that doesn't really work that way, does it? Because if time heals all wounds, then dentists and physical therapists would be out of a job. Right? It's not that time heals all wounds. Yes, time helps because it takes time to heal, but it also requires an intentionality to lean in. It requires a willingness at times to, to endure a little bit of discomfort, whether it's a conversation that needs to happen, whether it's voicing some concern, whether it's allowing a dislocated bone to be set right, which hurts a whole lot, but is the only way you can go back to being healed. And so yet again, David stays passive. Perhaps he was waiting for somebody else to step up. And eventually somebody does. One of his leaders, a guy named Joab, who is the commander of his army, recognizes that David's suffering. He misses his son. He recognizes that three years has gone by and he says, enough time has passed. It's time to get over this. It's time to get past your past, David. And so he goes up and he says, listen, king, whatever you choose to do is fine, but it's time to bring Absalom home. I know you want him here. And David goes, you're right, I do. He goes, let me go get him. All right, fine but I don't want to see the boy. And so we read now in chapter 14, verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur, where Absalom had been hiding out for the last three years at his grandpa's house, and he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. Apparently David was ready to allow his son to come back near him, but he wasn't ready to to let it all go. He wasn't ready to have that face-to-face. And so Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king. Jump down to verse 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Two years of living in the shadow of the palace. Two years of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And at some point Absalom goes, enough of this. 
I just want to reconnect. I, I just want to, to talk to my father. I want, to, I want to try to bury the hatchet. And if not that, then I just want, I want to be done with this. I don't want to live life in pause anymore. Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come. So he sent a second time. But again, Joab refused to come. Because Joab knows, if I go talk to Absalom, Absalom's going to ask me, would you please intercede with my dad? I really want to talk to him. And he knows that David's not going to want to do it. So, so Joab's just avoiding this conversation altogether. <laughs> and I love, I love what comes next. So then he, had, he said to his servants, hey, look, Joab's not coming and talking to me. So his field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants went and set Joab's field on the fire. When I read that, I think of Grayson. Because, because Gray, not because he likes to play with fire, don't worry, D. Um, but because my son has a tendency to be very gentle in the beginning. Mom, dad, dad, mom. And, and we'll be talking, and sometimes it's so gentle we don't hear. Or we're, we're trying to continue our conversation so we ignore him. And he says it again a little more forcefully. And eventually, if we continue to ignore him or not hear him, he will either throw a toy or a tantrum or something to get our attention. And in this case, Absalom ascribes to the same thing. If you won't come and talk to me, fine. Then let's see how you like toasted barley. And after eight years of being a parent, I've realized I know why kids act out when they want your attention. Because it works. And in this instance, it works. Verse 31. Joab then did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, Why on earth have your servants set my field on fire? That's a, that's a fair question. And Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, come so that I, you can send me to the king and ask, why have I come back from Geshur? Why did you have me come here if you weren't going to talk to me or even acknowledge my presence? It would have been better for me to stay there. Now then, Joab, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, then let him put me to death. But anything, anything is better than living life on pause. Anything is better than living with this chasm between me and my dad. I just want to be done with it. And if it means the end of my life, so be it. Fathers, I don't know if there is something between you and one of your children. But what I want you to hear here, because this is very true to life, is that there is something in our children that longs for connection with us. And no matter the mistakes we have made, no matter the, the distance and the time that has transpired, they never fully get over us. We're not only the ones that named them, but we are the one whose voice speaks more powerfully into their lives than just about anybody. You cannot underestimate the influence you have on your children's life. I, I skipped this at the beginning. I'm going to go back to it for just a moment. It's the first fill-in you've got. A few years back, the Promise Keepers did a study in which they... they, they said, okay, if, if somebody in a family comes to know Jesus Christ... What effect will it have on the rest of the family? And they found from a statistical standpoint that if a child comes to know Jesus Christ, the family will follow about 3.5% of the time. 
If a mother comes to know Jesus Christ, the family will follow about 17% of the time. But if a father comes to know Jesus Christ, their families will follow 97% of the time. Or is that 93? Sorry. 93% of the time. But regardless, it is an astronomical difference. Fathers, you cannot underestimate the influence that you have in your children's life. For better or for worse, our lives affect them. And in this case, Absalom, who has obviously stepped over the line, he has responded by killing one of his children, the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. And yet he is willing to face death just to reconcile with his father. He hungers for connection. And so Joab, this is verse 33, so Joab went to the king and he told him this. And then the king summoned Absalom and he came to him and Absalom bowed down with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. It's all good again. We've healed the wound. They are now reunited, right? Not necessarily. Because if this truly were reconciliation, if this really was a healing of that chasm, then we would expect to read about tears shed on both sides, apologies made, hugs given. We don't read any of that. This, this is more cold formality than anything. David sees his son kneeling down. He's kind of had his hand forced because Joab's come to him and said, listen, it's been two years. Your boy just set my field on fire. You got to deal with this. It's time for you to step up and be a parent, David. And David goes, fine, bring him in. I'll talk to him. And his boy is now kneeling before him and he, and, and he raises him up and he goes, fine, son. Yeah, we're good. We're good. All right, I'll see you around. Yeah, definitely. Father's Day. We'll, we'll get together. And David sends his son home. And that's the last time he sees his son alive. Days become weeks. Weeks become months. Months become years. Years pass. And Absalom waits for his father to call for him again. The call never comes. And eventually, Absalom's desire for his father becomes anger and resentment. And he starts thinking to himself, seriously? Is it that easy to just push me away? Fine. You don't want to love me? Fine. Then I will make you respect me. And so he goes out into the city streets and he begins to actively undermine his father's leadership. He stations himself at the gate to the city of Jerusalem. And when people would come from all around to get counsel and to have the king speak into their needs... Absalom would meet them at the gate and say, hey, what's your problem? Why are you here? And they'd say, well, this is what's going on. And he would just, wow, that's not all right. Wow, yeah, you need justice. And honestly, I am so sorry, but there is not a judge in this city who will give you justice. If only I were the judge, I'd make sure you got justice. And for four long years... Absalom meets people at the city gates slowly but surely currying favor from the people of Israel. And after four years of this, he decides the foundation is there. It's time for me to make my move. And so Absalom leaves the city 
And he gathers a people around him and he declares himself king. He raises up an army and he begins to march on Jerusalem to take the throne away from his dad. Oh yeah, he's a boy who has been spited. He is a boy who has been hurt. And he is now going to hurt the one who has hurt him the most, his father. The one he wanted to step up and lean in? No. You didn't do it, Dad, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the man and I'm going to show you that you will respect me. And so Absalom begins to march with his army on Jerusalem. And David, being a good, loving king, recognizes that the last thing that the capital city of Israel needs is a civil war. And so rather than fighting his son, he gathers up his people, he gathers up the rest of his family, and he leaves the city. He basically abdicates the throne to his son. And he begins to leave. And for Absalom, it's not enough to take the throne away from his father. It's not enough to take his home away from his father. He wants to hurt him. He wants to embarrass him. And so I won't tell you what he does, but he basically says, what is the most uh, disrespectful thing I could do to my father to show people that I have zero respect for this man? And he does that publicly. Just to rub his father's nose in the fact that he's an angry young man. And then, as if that wasn't enough, because angry people tend to make poor choices. Absalom decides... It's not enough to take his throne away from him and his home away from him and publicly disrespect him. I want to destroy this man who has destroyed my life. And so he gathers his army and he pursues David, never taking into account the fact that this is Israel's most decorated military commander. Everything we talked about last week, everything David put his hand to, he was successful at. So great idea, Absalom. You're going to take this ragtag group of people you just put together and you're going to go take on David and his military might that that has plenty of experience in the field. And so it plays out the way you would have expected it to play out. As soon as Absalom's army approaches David's, David's army turns, faces them, and begins to fight. And very quickly, Absalom's army scatters. And Absalom, smelling a rout, recognizes the jig is up and he runs. He gets on his donkey and he takes off. And in in a moment that would be comical if it wasn't tragic, Absalom, who has this flowing hair, is going under an oak tree and the branches of the oak tree tangle with his hair and he finds himself stuck in the branches of the tree and the donkey keeps running and all of a sudden he's now hanging from the branches of the oak tree. And David's soldiers surround this man who had tried to usurp the throne. And they've got their spears trained at him, but they have been told in no uncertain terms by King David, nobody is to touch the boy. I want him returned to me safe and sound. And so they stand there waiting for somebody to move. And then comes Joab, the leader of David's army. And he sees the boy hanging there, the boy that tried to take the throne away from David, the boy that's caused all of this trouble, the one that has been a thorn in David's side for years. And he says, enough is enough. And he grabs a spear out of the hand of one of the soldiers and he plunges it into Absalom's heart and kills him. I think that Joab felt that he was protecting David from his own sentimentality. Yeah, David, you have the heart of a father. That's great. But but you're not going to make a wise choice here because you love this boy too much. So I'm going to make the choice for you. I'm going to take the kid off the playing field. 
And then he sends some runners back to tell David, the war is won. The throne has been restored to you. You can go home. Go ahead and jump with me to chapter 18. See how David responds when he hears the good news. The runners run up and say, long live the king. The battle has been won. The throne is yours still. And David's response is telling. He says, what about the boy? What about Absalom? How's my boy? And they say, long live the king. That traitor is dead. And we read here in verse 33, the very last verse of chapter 18. When he heard this, the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he was crying, my son Absalom, my son. Oh, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And I read that and I go, it is so unbelievably ironic that he would grieve about his child that for six years lived within the shadow of the palace. And for six years, he never made an attempt to reach out and reconcile with his boy. And then the moment that he's gone, he realizes how desperately he loves that boy. And isn't that like life? Often, we hold people at arm's length that have hurt us or that we may have hurt. And rather than dealing with the pain of it, we just hold them there. And then when it's too late, then we recognize, why did I do that? Why did I waste all of that time? And this morning... I know some of you are thinking, well, Eric, thanks so much for sharing that really uplifting, encouraging Father's Day story. I'm excited to go watch some golf now. But the truth of the matter is, if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it, right? So there are some of us here this morning who have carried pain into this room with us. Maybe it's a wound that's been inflicted upon our hearts by people that should have loved us better than they knew how to. There's a lot of people who wear the name father that don't have a clue how to be a dad. And the hard part of being raised by human beings is just that, that they're human and they make mistakes. And so maybe you've carried some wounding in with you today from somebody who should have loved you better. Maybe you've been the one who's done the wounding. Maybe you've said some really awful things. Maybe you haven't been there in the way that they needed you. Sure, maybe you provided for them, but you didn't really know how to be with them. And at this point, there's been so much time that's transpired that you just kind of go, it's easier not to deal with it. May I simply challenge you to take a different look at it this morning. Do not make the mistake of David and Absalom. Yeah, go get ready to go sell some cookies, baby. Don't make the same mistake that David and Absalom did. Don't think that because time has gone by that it's too late. And perhaps the greatest response that you can do today is the moment you leave here and after you've bought some baked goods, make a phone call to someone. Call somebody that you've been distant from. Call somebody that you've just been holding at arm's length. Perhaps another response for us this morning is the recognition that 
I think a lot of us go through life thinking that, we, that the people that are closest to us know how we feel about them, right? They know I love them. They, they know how much I feel. I mean, my parents know how much they, I love them. I mean, I took the trash out a couple weeks ago, right? I, I'm good. Or, you know, I, my kids know. That, my wife knows how much I love her because look at all the ways I provide. I, I wash her car. I, I go to work. I provide all of these things. They know I love them, and I'm saying, no, don't expect that they can read your mind. And please don't downplay the importance of hearing those words. I, to this day, remember the day that I sat with my father at Sioux Plantation and for the first time heard him say, Eric, I'm proud of you. And I love the fact that he says it a whole lot more now. But it was a gift to me the day that you told me you were proud of me. And I held on to that moment in that day because I, I, I realized I didn't, want to go, I didn't want to go through life wondering. And far too many of us are going through life wondering, how am I doing? Do not make your children wait to hear you say the words that you feel towards them. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't go to your grave holding on to the expectation that they can read your mind. Because I can't think of a single child who does not want to hear the words, I love you and I'm proud of you from a parent. And I can't think of a single parent who doesn't want to hear from your children, thank you, I love you. Or like that kid said in that video, I want to be like you someday. So if you think it, then say it. Thirdly, some of us, like David, are going through life in proximity to our families and our loved ones but emotionally we're disengaged. You're spending more time looking into your phone or a computer screen or a television screen than you are into the eyes of the people that matter the most to you in this world. And may I challenge you, and right now I know that I'm basically convicting myself and my wife will remind me that I said this later. Be present. Give your family the single greatest gift that you can give them, the presence of your presence. Be present with them as opposed to simply in close proximity to them. One last thought. Perhaps for some of us, the one whom we are longing most for and simply feel the furthest from is our Heavenly Father. We call this Father's Day, and it's fitting that we are gathering to worship our Heavenly Father on Father's Day. But I would imagine that for some of us, you find yourself in here today and just going, man, I feel a little bit like Absalom. I feel like I've blown it too much, like I've made too many mistakes and that I'm not worthy of his love. And if it was left to your own efforts, I would agree with you completely. You're not. But then again, none of us are. I mean, the truth of the matter is we all reside on the same foundation and that foundation is grace, not upon good works, not upon knowing the most scriptures, not upon anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the foundation that our relationship with God is built upon. Now, if you're at your Bibles, go back to chapter 14 for just a moment because sandwiched within this story of a father and a son longing for one another, but never really quite sure how to get past it, is a really wonderful statement. And it's spoken by somebody, we don't even know the woman's name. But it is a powerful declaration of our father's love and the hope that we have in him that transcends the brokenness of this world. So if you're in 2 Samuel chapter 14, look at verse 14. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. 
Okay, it's a pretty true statement about life in this broken, fallen, sin-scarred world. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. But that is not what God desires. He devises ways so that banished, a banished person does not remain banished from him. Yes, we will die. Yes, our bodies will break down. Yes, we will make mistakes and fall flat on our face. Yes, we will disrespect God as his representatives. We will not represent him very well quite often. And yet, our mistakes, our flaws, our humanity does not need to get the last word. And God made sure of that because he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, to take our punishment upon him so that we could be reconciled to him. So we who have been banished because of our sins do not need to be, remain estranged from him our whole lives. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Jesus told a story, and it's one you know well, about a boy who, who pulled an Absalom. This kid basically told his dad, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you're dead, so can I have it? And this father gives it to his son. And then he goes off and he blows his inheritance on wine and women and parties. And one morning he wakes up in a pigsty, which is a great place for a, a young Jewish boy, covered in the filth of his choices. And he thinks to himself, what an unbelievable failure I've turned out to be. There's no way my father would ever accept me back as his son. But even the servants in his home live better than I'm living right now. Maybe, just maybe, my dad will let me come back as one of his servants. And so he picks himself up, picks himself up out of the mire, and he begins that long journey home. And then the perspective of this story changes to the father, who hasn't been sitting at home just cooling his heels, doing nothing. This whole time that his son has been gone, he has been longingly looking to the horizon, waiting to see his son. And don't forget, this father represents our father God in Jesus' story. And when he sees his son on the horizon, he doesn't stand there with his arms crossed, waiting for his son to make that long walk of shame. He hitches his robes up and he runs to his boy. And when he gets there, he throws his arms around his son, his prodigal. And he begins to weep openly. He says, my boy is home. My boy, I love you. And he, and he just holds that stinky, sweaty, disgusting child in his arms. And then he throws a celebration. Because his son, who was lost to him, has been found. And this is the way Jesus portrayed our Father, God, and says, our Father loves you. And it transcends the mistakes you've made. It transcends the ways that you have screwed up. Because our Father does not desire that we remain estranged from Him. And He devises ways that banished people can be reconciled to Him. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to respond one tangible way right now and then later on if you want to make a phone call or say something to somebody do that then but right now for the next couple of minutes pete i'm just going to ask you to to strum a little bit without words at this point but let's take the next two minutes and have a conversation with our father god it might be a time where you simply say thank you to him for all of the ways that he has cared for you and walked with you stood beside you 
Or maybe there's some things that you recognize as we've been talking that have been impeding you from resting in his love. And maybe this time is a time to lay those down. Perhaps some of this time is spent just going, God, is there anything that I've been holding on to, anger, resentment towards somebody else? Is there anybody I need to forgive? Because don't forget, unforgiveness is like a poison that we hold in our hand, hoping to splash it into the other person's face. And the whole time we hold on to it, it eats away at us. So is there any, anybody I need to forgive and lay down this anger? Or is there anybody that I... So let's just spend a couple of minutes inviting the God to have a conversation with us and then we'll worship together.